0: Philippians chapter 2, if you would uh, turn there with me, the middle of the chapter and just kind of hang out there. We'll pick it up in verse 12 in just a little bit. I don't know how many of you were here last week when we started chapter 2. Um, hopefully you did. If you didn't, um, that would be really important to understand the total context of what we're dealing with in this, in this chapter. Um, chapter 2 really is all about humility. Humility. Um, the shape of Christ in us, the picture of Christ as example and humility, and uh, Paul's call for us to, to live that way. In fact, I think it started in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul commands the church to live a life worthy of the gospel, and I think any anytime Paul thinks about a worthy life, he thinks about a humble life, so I think that's one piece of this story, but the other thing is... Um, As disclosed in the first half of the first chapter, there is a a description of brothers, he calls them, who preach with wrong motives envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. And I think that launches him into a thought about how uh, this thing we call the church can get really messed up with bad motives and and bad intentions. Um, And I don't have to tell you that the problem of selfishness, ego, And arrogance uh, isn't just in the church in Philippi. It can happen even in our own church. And uh, it's in all of our hearts. And as much as we would like to believe that those issues don't exist, um, they do. And maybe you even have some scars or stories in your life where you've seen these kinds of behaviors or demeanors show up in the church and blow it apart. And uh, so you've got some... uh, Some wreckage in your story. Um, So let's call this the preventative passage for us. Um, Let's pray that we never get to a place where uh, the wrong motives drive what we do and that we walk as Christ walked, humbly serving one another. That's the intention of this passage today. Um, I think nothing is more important, at least maybe for us to hear in our culture, than uh, how to fight to be small, because our culture is living on the back of how to promote itself. And uh, so the church takes a whole different uh, position, a whole different demeanor, uh, amount of effort goes into going the opposite direction. And we want to talk about that, fighting for obscurity and smallness and humility. It's certainly not popular, but it is the way of Christ. So we want to, we want to emulate that. Let me, let me do this. If you missed last week, let me back up and run it. this passage we're in today. In a couple minutes, I'll give you sort of the context so you won't miss it much. Again, like I said, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Our our manner of life should be worthy of the gospel, which he goes on to say and describe as uh, one mind and and together um, with one spirit. And the reason why is is how much we have in common. We share the same Savior. We have the same uh, need. We have the same fellowship, the same love, the same mercy we receive from Christ. And that is the source of what makes us one, makes us uh, together, unifies us. That's his his point. And unity, he went on to describe, and and he used a couple of phrases in the next little section of like this one-mindedness, or the single-mindedness, or full accord, and that's simply him talking about the gospel, a singular focus, a singular purpose about one gospel. And I suppose it's worth stopping and saying this again and and sinking these roots even deeper because our world offers so many other good news options out there. And they like to identify people, categories, under different versions of what brings me my joy, my answers. And, And the church... As different as we are, we are together because of one Savior, right? The beauty of the church, the diversity of the church is seen in that people from all sorts of cultures and and all sorts of places can all be one in Christ, right? And there is only one way, that's what we confess, and his name is Jesus and there is no other, and that's what makes us one, and uh, so that's what Paul says in the first uh, beginning of chapter two, and then he says, "You and I will experience that that oneness when we walk small, humble is the word we use, when we choose to wear humility, and uh, and he describes it like this: when when the story isn't about us, when when we're not trying to impress other people, and when others are more important. Than we are. That sort of is kind of the small description of what it is to be humble. And then he puts Jesus on the pedestal and he lifts him up and he says, like him, the Lord of glory, the creator of this of the universe and the giver of life. This this Jesus, who manifested his true godlyhood. Into the image of a slave. He bore the image of a suffering servant to die in our place. That's what we celebrate, right? That is our good news. And so he uses Jesus as the example of the ultimate humble one. And then Paul concludes with, like, well, therefore, okay, Jesus is exalted higher than any other name, any other name, he is lifted higher. And one day every, every tongue will confess him as Lord. He'll get all the glory due his name eventually. And that's sort of where that passage we looked at last week stopped. Right after this, this wonderful, beautiful picture of Jesus and his exaltation comes more instruction with the same thing in mind, in my opinion. Paul continues with this idea of how we get shaped in small ways. Humility that produces unity, which is what he's talking about here, so... That's where we pick it up in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. The first word of verse 12 is therefore. And I told you last week, whenever you see that word, you go back a while and you look and see kind of what is a part of this therefore, a conclusion to some grand statement. And that is what Paul's doing here. In other words, he's saying, because all that I've said is true, then you go and live like this. Live the lifestyle of the humble. The humble. Be a humble person, be a humble people, a collective people that are small and choosing obscurity. That's his point. And remember I told you last week why this is so important for us, is that without humility we've got no shot at the unity that we're called to, and without unity we've got no shot at a good testimony, because the world will see this thing as a joke. And so we fight for this thing and in the most positive sense of the word, uh, to belong together, and I suppose it could be said like this, how small we live is directly connected to how well we live uh, with one another. Humility is key. So everyone on track with this? Okay, so I have t- decided to outline this thing with seven words, so if you don't like to take notes, this is your lucky day. One word per, per point, and, and, and I'm just calling it kind of really the, w- what humility looks like or the lifestyle of the humble. Um, here's the first word. It is obedience. Humble people are obedient people. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What Paul is getting at, what he's saying primarily is obvious. Obey. You have obeyed. Keep obeying. I was with you, you obeyed, I'm, I'm gone, so obey in my absence as well. Don't, don't be the kind of person that offers excuses or suggests that this, this command belongs to someone else. Don't sit in a service and hear a sermon and think about, I hope John's here because John really needs this thing on humility today because he's an arrogant dude and, and I'm not. Okay, so that's what we do. We have these deflectors when people preach and we try to turn them on our spouse or the person in the room who looks like the epitome of whatever they're talking about. You obey obey. That's what he says. The humble people walk in obedience. We submit ourselves to God. What God says applies to me. I'm too busy working on me to think about how you're supposed to do this. So that's what he says primarily is, is obvious. But there are, in the last phrase of this verse, a couple common mistakes that are made. I want to address those quickly. It's where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. One of the common mistakes that is made is that people use this to defend an individualistic version of salvation. Like I've got Jesus, i got my Bible, I don't need anything else. And so it could be described like uh, I can go out on a mountain, I can sit down and I can read and have my own little church service. And I don't have to mess with this messy thing called the church It it screws things up all the time. It's hard work, right? So just avoid In fact, it sounds like Paul's giving me a command, go work out my own salvation. So I'm gonna go work it out on my own. That's what it sounds like, but that's just not what he's saying here. The application... Of this text is first and primarily corporate. It's about us working out our salvation, how we conduct our lives together. Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling does not primarily deal with the salvation of individuals. It's working out within the context of the one another's. You are parts of one body, right? All have different roles, different places uh, that we serve and where we function, but we serve in the context of one body. Now, to be honest, there are things that you experience personally, you you confess, you believe, you pray, you read, you do those things, and I suppose they are private in a sense, but, but Paul always comes back to is how we live this faith out. We live it in the context of the one another's. The command is expressed: this salvation together in a community of believers. And in fact, I would tell you, if you want to stay in rhythm of the context, you, you lose it completely if you decide to make a mistake on this passage. If you say, no, this is where Paul goes off the reservation, he starts talking about how me personally, by myself, exclusion of the church, go and live out my salvation, then you lose his thrust about unity and humility. You don't even get to that. In fact, uh, just, just to make my point. You tell me how easy it is to see yourself as humble without anybody else around. Right? You sit in your closet, you go, I'm a pretty humble dude. People should like me. I mean, there are people in this room who who can hear, like, be humble and be shocked that you're not. You need the one another's really to, to actually see those realities come to fruition. So where do you show your selfishness? Where do you show your ego? Where do you show your self-centeredness and your lack of concern for others when you're with others, right? So in context, Paul is telling us, work this thing out, the expression and the vision of, of gospel life together, together. And that's what he's saying And that's the reality of what we have to do. Now, I've added a a word to kind of help, I think, what Paul is getting at in verse 12. And it's just one word. It's the word together. Listen to how it reads this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation together with fear and trembling. That gives a sense of what Paul is saying here. Yes, there's some individual work. There's some confessions that we make. But we are always in the context of the one another. So that's his point. Yeah, that's the first potential mistake people make with that last phrase. There's another one that people make, and that is this, that it, uh, they miss on what it means to work out your salvation. So, so let me use the negative to say what it is not. It, it, it does not mean that you work for your salvation, and it does not mean you work toward your salvation. In other words, salvation isn't something over here that God offers you if you move the right way and you make the right steps and you commit to the right things and you you do all these things. Salvation isn't something to earn or to merit by your behavior, right? It's not there and God meets you in the middle. That's not how this works. Paul is not saying that you play a part in saving yourself. This is not a man-God cooperation. It's not how it works. You doing some, God doing the rest. In fact, if we go back just a few weeks, we were in the book of Jonah, and there was one particular phrase we spent a whole week on at teaching, and it was the phrase, salvation belongs to our God. Do you remember that? Okay, we spent a whole week trying to push all the credit of saving work into God's camp. In spite of every instinct, in spite of every potential fractured cultural kind of input into this discussion, Salvation belongs to God. It is his property. Salvation is his name. He's the saving God. We, we, the Bible says we, we, this is foolishness to us who are perishing. We, we look at the gospel as a joke. So God has to do some serious surgical work on my heart to get me to even care about the things of God, let alone, let alone help in my own salvation. So it's his identity. It's his, a work of his grace alone. It's achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit who intervenes on behalf of dead people, spiritually dead people, and opens their eyes and minds to confess Jesus as Lord. It is offered on his terms. It's only through Jesus, and it's an act of his sovereign will. That is what salvation is, and it all belongs to him. Amen? Okay, that's what we confess together. So, got to fix a couple of those mistakes here, but let me do this. Let me paraphrase um, a little bit of this passage so you can kind of get the thrust of I think what Paul is saying. We'll add a couple of those words there and and maybe this will kind of ring even more true. It's as if Paul said this, brothers and sisters obey. I know you have and I want you to keep obeying. Live out the salvation that God alone gives together. Pursue spiritual maturity with the reverential sense of accountability and profound respect to God. That's what he's trying to get at we together working out what God alone gives and in hum- humble ways. Okay, before we uh, move on, there is one more thing I feel compelled to say and, and it was uh, I was sitting there wondering about the variety of people that come to our services and uh, so this is for some and I'm assuming it's for someone but um, no one can work out a salvation that they don't have and, and a lot of people, maybe somebody in this room tries and the way we try is self-righteousness. Salvation, like I said, belongs to God. He gives, it's his sovereign work, that he works on a dead man's heart, but that doesn't stop people from identifying a problem. There's a void in my heart. Bible people say there's the void of God. I don't think people who know God even know what that's called, but they know something's missing, so what do they do? It's like this giant vortex that tries to suck in every solution, anything, anything that will work, anything that will make it go away or make it feel better or give me some sense of security, and so we try and we try and we try, and that's the mess that we create, and then somehow we go, man, that's too too gory, that's too messy, and so I'll try to sort it out, I'll try to clean it up, I'll try to be good, I'll try to be somewhat different than the norm, give myself some sense of like I'm okay, but I want you to know today that you're not okay. If that is your version of working out your salvation with self-righteousness, if you just try to have somehow these cosmic scales around where your good outweighs your bad, and when it's all said and done that your version of God will have to give credit to your big pile of good, it's not going to happen you don't have something way more pure and holy than what you've done, you will not know what it is to be saved. You will know judgment. And I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm trying to tell you the truth because if if what you're doing is pursuing a dead end, then you hope what someone would tell you, it's going nowhere. And I'm telling you, Jesus says it's going nowhere. Any solution that doesn't have exclusively him is a dead end. And if you're trying to work out your quote-unquote, I use that term loosely, your own salvation, your own version of hope, your own sense of satisfaction and purpose, and it doesn't have Jesus, the only one who was pure enough and holy enough for you, it's a dead end. And here's what the scriptures tell us. Jesus alone is good enough, and he alone is holy enough. And God made a promise that all who come to Jesus, he will not turn away. And all who come to Christ will be saved. That's it. You bring your destruction and you bring your problems and you bring your brokenness and you bring your mess to Jesus. And He's got you. I felt compelled to say that. All right. At this pace, we won't get through the seven words, but we'll try. All right. Here's the second word of uh, what a humble life looks like it's the word dependent, verse 13. Humble people are dependent people, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This, by the way, is more clarity on the issue of working out your own salvation. Paul is continuing in his thought, and he's trying to clarify those things, and so Paul deals with the actual things that we do in our salvation and because of our salvation. And this, by the way, is a passage to push back against all the pride that wants to rise up from time to time and boast in what we do, okay? So Paul just lays it out as a sentence, say, no, no, he's at work in you to do these things. So if you feel like you're special, if you feel like you're uh, super important, if you look at this Christian thing, you know, I got this, I got 30 years in Jesus, man, I know this, I know my Bible, I got this, I've got my life under control, um, then what Paul wants you to realize this morning is that, um, that there really isn't anything special about you apart from the ongoing work of God. It absolutely is essential. God in you, not just to save you, but God in you every second of your life and all the good that comes out of that is the work of God. Do you understand? Um, so let, let me uh, ask you a couple questions. When, when pride and arrogance gets the best of you, what is it about? <laughs> when, you're at your, when you're at your selfish worst, why? Do you know why? Maybe we can synthesize all of our like, specific reasons down to one giant category, and it's when we try to live independent of God. Right? God, I'll fix this. I know the problem. God, I'll do this. Um, and we try to get it. We try to have it and, and pull it off without him. And Paul wants us to never forget the truth that God isn't just the author of saving us. He's the author of everything good in us. Yes, he's the one who draws dead people to life. That's true. But every good action that comes out of the people's lives he saves is a work of the Holy Spirit. He gets the credit. You're never independent of the power of God. He is the creditor of everything that we do, whatever we would call good. So, There are two important parts, if we want to just continue to explain it further, um, to every action that you and I make. What you do and the why of what you do. Here in this verse, Paul tells us that God is responsible for both. He says it this way, that God does it both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, um, apart from Christ. Every, every arrow in our life is pointed inward. God resurrects my heart. He replaces that hard, stony heart with one that beats for him, and suddenly he changes, this is my term, he changes my want to. My want to was always me. My want to is always away from him. My want, to, my want to was always broken, always twisted, always distorted, always. And God suddenly in his love and intervention changes my want to, and I want him now and I want what he wants now. That's what Paul's saying here, that he's at work both to will and to work. So the way I would say it is that God is, uh, salvation belongs to our God, but so does transformation. Transformation belongs to our God. Obedience belongs to us. It's all his work. And Paul ends with the thought that God is pleased to do it in us, and it's for our good that he does it. And our good in this specific case is bringing an end to the things that would bring division between us, right? That is the good that God's doing, the good that God is committed to. Okay, so that's our our second word, right? Dependent. Let me give you the third word to describe the humble life, and that is thankful, thankful. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let me read that again. (laughs) Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Who needs to hear this today? Um, the word grumbling is the idea of inward reasoning of the mind. Disputing, arguing is when it comes out of my mind, into my mouth, and out to you. We we know this person. We could be this person. The grumbling, arguing, complaining uh, person. Seems to me there are two things come to mind if that's truly the definition of those words. One is that no complaint comes out of our mouth without already having a home in in our head. Right? So if we're spending our time thinking about the things um, that we don't like, it's coming out. And by the way, isn't it interesting the word grumbling actually sounds like what it is? <laughs> That's before it ever formulates into syllables that equal words and sentences that hurt people. We just do it. That's <laughs> grumbling. So just to encourage you, yes, don't complain. Don't argue. Don't, don't grump at each other. But let me just push it back farther because that's what Paul says. Don't think it. Which now really pushes us into things that might stretch us because we all think we have reasons to own our grump. Paul says, do all things without thinking it, without saying it. Okay, what do you think is the cure to grumbling and complaining? It's the word thankful. That's why I gave you that word. The demeanor, the lifestyle of the humble are a thankful people. Nothing is more unifying um, in the life of the church than people who are, are really truly thankful. From time to time in ministry you run into people and you look at them and go, man, they just have an extra like supernatural quantity of something. You know, There was a couple, uh, a, a, a husband and wife, who, um, who have since passed a part of our church for many, many, many years. They had what I would call the supernatural quantity of thankfulness. Everywhere they went, they influenced every environment. They had no role of authority, no no official title, no responsibility. They were 80 plus and growing older every day but everywhere they went, they led with no intention. They didn't put it out there, it's like, hey, we need to go be thankful today. They were just thankful people. There's a big difference, right? when you put it on, or whether it's true. These people were truly a thankful people, and they, uh, they were amazing. And every place they went, didn't matter what, what age group they were with, they totally influenced it in that kind of way, which made me realize that it's really hard to be grumpy when someone else won't pay, play along, and they would never play along. They always saw God and his goodness and everything. So um, why do you think this verse is here? I mean, this could stand on its own legs, right? We could yank this out of here and stick it around, things to tell the church. But but he's in context here and for obvious reasons. One is that we have a tendency to be this, don't we? We have a tendency not to be a thankful people. Um, And the other is because it is so destructive to the unity that Paul is preaching here. See, here's here's where unity comes from. It comes from humility, and humility causes us to stop and think about what we are without God. And when you get there, all you can say is, thank you for grace. (laughs) I really have nothing else to say. At moments when I'm not thinking about what I am, I think I have something to offer, but God, when I look at what I am, I stop. I just say, thank you for grace. That's truly where it comes from. That's the source. One writer said this, and I think it's convicting, that's why I put it here for us to hear this morning, but doing all things without grumbling or questioning is a watershed state of the soul. Those who persist in such murmuring are not obedient to Christ and his gospel and are rejecting the divine call to work out your own salvation. And they impede the uh, their own souls and the souls of their brothers and sisters in this matter. They are under toes to the body of Christ so if you are one of these people, understand then that you find and will stand before the Savior, you will answer with shame. There's some conviction in that. So look in the mirror, your own mirror, and find out if you've got a mind that thinks complaining things and your mouth that contributes. Okay, let me give you another word to talk about this humble life. It's the word contrast. Verse 15 and 16. I'll read 14 as well. Do do all things without grumbling or, or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that it did not run in vain or labor in vain. There's one particular phrase in that two verses that I want you to kind of hang on to and that is he says that we shine as lights in the world. And what he's referring to is the way in which we collectively live out our humility and our unity as lights in the world, confessing one one Savior. So our singular confession, our commitment to smallness, and our commitment to each other, that picture is what seems, in in Paul's mind, to be an unavoidable uh, picture of light in a dark, dark world. Like, just put light against... a black background, you get what he's trying to say. You living like that against them, <coughs> they'll see it all day long. It'll be unavoidable. That contrast. I know our world has no idea how to understand it. It's not like they're going to go, oh, you're being humble like Jesus. Oh, you're choosing smallness. Oh, I get it. The gospel, one can, they don't understand it. They just can't avoid it. And you might have conversations with people, friends or neighbors or coworkers, where this is actually living out and you're telling the stories of it living out or whatever, and they look at you and they go, I don't get it. But there's something very winsome about it. It's unavoidable. They notice it. They can see it. Christians living humble lives in unity, confessing Jesus alone, well, that's pretty huge And it is, by the way, is the kind of picture, this collective picture of that lifestyle live together as we choose smallness for ourselves. It is the collective group that go on display. One one writer used an illustration. I thought it was helpful, so so I want to use it. Um, I know you've all been to the mountains a, a time or two in your life, and you go out there in the middle of the night, and you swear somebody's faking you. You look up at the sky, and you go, where was... All this in Gilbert, like there's stars everywhere. It's like they lowered the heavens, like they're right over your eyes. And it's so overwhelming. But what you catch, what your eye catches beyond just the individual lights, what it stops on, what it notices, what's more powerful, more effective is when it gets to a constellation of stars. Like these giant clusters of mini lights. And you go, oh, I noticed that one. That one's got power, right? Right. And he's saying, well, that's the church. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which all the individual lights matter and they can be seen, but what makes a difference is the collective grouping of lights. A church together living this way. He said, uh, he said this, that most nobody has heard about the star Merrick. You have if you're a nerd, but anyway. Um, but everyone's heard of the constellation it's a part of, the Big Dipper, and that's true. Yeah, there's a star up there, but he's a part of so much bigger. He goes on to write this. It's best not to judge a religion by the testimony of one bold but fleeting light. Rather, the consolation of millions through the centuries, the example of believers, young and old, across tribes and nations, the witness of those who first beheld the events of Jesus of Nazareth. These are the stars that light the universe with something to ponder. I love that. The church all over the world is a cluster of lights living together that the world cannot avoid. They see it. Shine as stars, Paul says. A beautiful picture. Humble people are people who live a life of contrast to the darkness of their world. The world operates on envy and pride, selfish ambition, not the redeemed. That isn't what we use. All right, let me give you another word. The word is encouragement. I'm going to blast with you those last three, by the way, so you can get out of here on time. But the next word, word number five, is the word encouragement, 17 and 18. Paul says, For even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There is a word picture that Paul is painting here with this description of a poured-out offering on their sacrifice. It was uh, used of a sacrifice ritual where there'd be a, uh, a main sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, an offer, and you light the fire and it begins to be consumed. There was a complementary secondary offering offered as well, and that would be the libation, a drink poured out over on top of this burning altar. all right? And that drink would smolder and smoke and create steam. One was the main sacrifice, the other was a secondary sacrifice. One was just to compliment the other. So here's Paul's point by this illustration. Is that his life, his current condition of being in prison, his pending death, we're not too far away from him actually giving his life for this thing, he sees it as secondary to the sacrifice of the church in in Philippi. He looks at Philippi and goes, man, what you're doing, how God's using you, how you're serving each other, how you're obeying God, how you're loving each other, I'm glad to be the secondary complement to what God's doing in you. Your sacrifice is the main thing. What I've got going on is much less of a deal, and it's a source of incredible joy to watch you. Now, I don't have to remind you where Paul's been in his life, right? As he describes shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and naked and danger and danger and danger. Over and over again, Paul says he looks like the epitome of what it looks like to really, to really be the ultimate sacrifice. But I, I want you to get this, and I think this is really important. True humility sees other people's sacrifices as more important than their own. If you ever are serving or whatever and you feel slighted, gotcha. Service is this. Service is open-handed. God, use it. Do whatever you want with it. I'm nothing. Here you go. True humility is that it recognizes everyone else's service before its own. I see what you're doing. Paul looks at the church in Philippi. Clearly, he's got his own story. And he sees them and says, man, I'm just so glad I get to watch it. There's great joy in it. Great joy for you. Great joy for me. I'm just a compliment to what God is doing in you. So let's use that word. Can we? a sense of encouragement. When the church encourages each other that way, I think it brings us together. There's great unity with that. The last two words are just two examples. And like I said, I'll I'll hurry these last two. Um, I think with Paul's mind on the subject of humility and being humble, choosing smallness, two examples come to his mind right away, and that's what he finishes this chapter with. One is the uh, protege Timothy, and the other is a man named Epaphroditus. Both of them have a particular uh, recognition in the text as far as something they're particularly known for, um, but they also share something in common. Timothy, he says of him, I have no one like him who will be generally concerned for your welfare. Let's use the word, a humble life is a concerned life. A concerned life. Because in honesty, um, there is a a burden of care that humility lives in. Humility has to be for others. It is for others. Timothy genuinely concerned um, for the church in Philippi. That's what he's recognized for. And you know as well as I do what kind of unity care brings. If we were all genuinely concerned for the care of one another, wow, that would pull us together. Timothy's an example of that kind of life. Epaphroditus, I'll just give you one verse, verse 30. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. So let's use the word sacrifice. That, that could be sort of like the word over everything, but nevertheless, Epaphroditus is recognized for almost giving it all, and I'm not suggesting you leave here and considering ways that you can give uh, your life away, risk your life, um, but, but I would say that the word we should use and look at in light of his example is sacrifice, and I suppose that could be one word used to describe what Paul's been saying from the very beginning, just an other's first lifestyle, and we've said forever that we want to be a church that, that really is for others, That truly puts ourselves in the back and puts others in in the front and we fight for that. That requires humility in that. Um, Paul labels uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus for their genuine concern and their risk of their life. So let's say concern and sacrifice. But I think there's something collectively they share that they're used as examples of real faith and real humility. And Paul knows what we know that you and all these other believers in this room, we share a closeness closer than blood relatives because of our confession. That's not an exaggeration, that's just true. And I told you last week that what we have, we have forever. What we share, we share together. Our confession that Jesus alone saves sinners of whom I am the worst, we carry that, all of us. And so we share the same mission, not just the same confession, we we share the same desire for the same attitudes of Christ. The, the image that he painted in verse five. Fully God took the position of a slave. That's what we want. That's what we need. And here's how we do it. We fight for that thing. And I use that word intentionally. Humility doesn't come through a Bible study. I want you to study the Bible. We're studying the Bible. Humility comes when you go out there and the next time somebody says you're not important. You fight to embrace that. Okay, I'm cool with that because I'm important to who? You got, we've got to get over being slighted. We've got to be able to get to the place where we wrap our arms around being small and saying that's the beautiful picture. All of us doing it together where we put the display of Jesus in the forefront. Does that make sense? Yeah? Let's pray for his help. Yeah. Lord God, we need your help to do this. This isn't isn't natural, but it certainly is supernatural. You do this kind of work in us. You are saving us and forming us into the image of our Savior who was the ultimate example of a suffering servant. So God, help us wrap our heads and our hearts and our behaviors around the image of being small. God, let us be small if you will be big. That is our prayer in Christ's name, amen.